Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Uh, we're back. Hot and Bothered is back. Coronavirus, quarantine, special. Daniel and I are both dutifully social distancing as well. You all should be. That's right. Uh, I'm taping in, in Philly. Uh, our executive producer, Colin, is taping in an undisclosed location in the north of France. Kate, I think you're in Brooklyn. Is that right? I am, in fact, in Brooklyn. If you hear uh, sirens, those are the times we're living in. I've also fostered a dog, so if you hear a dog snoring, that is choo-choo. Look, you know, now that now that we've promoted Colin's executive producer, we need a production assistant, uh, multi-species. I feel like here at Hot and Bother, we always try to promote multi-species solidarity. So uh, we're, we're just doing a praxis. So just a reminder, uh, I'm Daniel Aldana-Cohen. Um, teach sociology at Penn, run something called the Sociospatial Climate Collaborative. Uh, and along with Kate um, and a couple of others, Theoria Francos and Alyssa Battistoni, uh, we are all the co-authors of uh, Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. I am Kate Aronoff. I am a staff writer at The New Republic and wrote Planet to Win along with Daniel, Melissa, and Thea. And I'm tracking the coronavirus, like just about everyone else working in media these days. Yeah. So, you know, we used to run this podcast, Hot and Bothered. Uh, it's a co-production with Descent Magazine. Um, and we were, you know, we've been on hiatus uh, a fair bit last couple of years. We've had a couple of specials. We were just finished a miniseries. We've been on hiatus since roughly 2018, so for two years. Yeah, uh, and you know, like even Pink Floyd comes out of hiatus, you know, so why, why can't we? <laughs> um, yeah, we've been on hiatus for, <laughs> for a while, but uh, we're in really grim times. We're all social distancing. We're quarantined. Um, and uh, this is like a a moment when the climate emergency has not gone anywhere, in fact, keeps getting worse. And then there's the other emergencies of massive unemployment trending toward Great Depression levels. And just as Kate was saying, you know, the COVID-19 uh, health epidemic threatening to kill, you know, hundreds of thousands or probably millions of people uh, around the world. So I, I don't know, it seemed to me, Kate, like this, we just had to come back. Yeah, I mean, I think I... Probably like you, Daniel, and like a lot of people listening, have had a little trouble uh, focusing on much of anything. And I think, you know, I have the kind of uh, unique privilege of, of writing about this stuff pretty often. And so I, you know, am paying attention to the news a fair bit, as insofar as, you know, we're all a little bit glued to our screens these days. Um, but I have been a little remiss about the fact that climate has not um, been a, a huge part of the conversation about either the virus itself, which, you know, as we will probably discuss in the coming episodes, and, and today has, uh, has tie-ins to, to the ecological crisis and the climate crisis, and uh, the response to it. Um, you know, we are, it is not just a virus, there is a profound economic fallout, um, which we're already seeing the effects of. 10 million people filed for unemployment. Um, we'll get into all this later, but uh, we you know, saw an opening to, to really talk about the climate crisis um, in the time of coronavirus. So we are going to be broadcasting um, on this theme every single Thursday for as long as the quarantine lasts. And what even comes after the quarantine, we don't know. But 
certainly for the time of the quarantine and probably a little bit afterwards. I don't think there's not going to probably be a, a back to usual in a very smooth uh, way. We'll be coming out uh, every Thursday um, up at the Descent Magazine website and on your favorite podcast channels. So starting next week, we'll start having guests. Um, we're really looking forward to that and to cover the cost of this podcast overall of having guests, of everybody sounding good. We are asking folks who are able to contribute, those who are able to contribute, to go on to Patreon and help cover the cost of production. Uh, our website is patreon.com slash hot bothered climate, all one word. That's patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. Little $3 a month is really helpful. And there's some pretty nice perks uh, if, if you sign up. Subscriptions to Descent, uh, digital copies of the book Daniel and I wrote, along with Theory of Frankus and Alyssa Bastoni. And uh, we will be doing a monthly happy hour. We can hang out with Daniel and I, you know, give us your complaints, your praise, anything in between. And of course, a reminder, it's those who can you know, contribute anything at all that are making this whole thing free for anybody to listen to. So let's dig into these kind of converging crises. Uh, of course, capitalism, uh, coronavirus, and and climate change. Kate, why don't you know fill me in on kind of the ways you've been thinking lately about how all of this stuff is interconnected. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting moment because there's so much news <laughs> happening. I mean, to the extent that that has been sort of the theme of, of you know, I would, I would say most of the Trump administration, honestly, um, has just been this sort of constant onslaught. Um, the coronavirus has seen uh, just, you know, a drumbeat of horrors in a way that I think even covering climate uh, it's a little bit jarring. I mean, constant updates on the death count. I'm here in New York, which is one of the epicenters of the U.S. crisis, and then just, you know, everything that has sort of come out from it, right? So uh, coronavirus, much like climate crises generally, has crashed into a society uh, in the United States, which has spent several decades just chipping away at the public sphere. Uh, we do not have anything resembling a universal healthcare system. We've had um, decades of wage stagnation. Something like 40% of Americans can't afford to cover a $400 emergency. And yet we've had 10 million people file for unemployment um, in just two weeks. We'll probably you know, see, see far more than that. Uh, projections now uh, could see unemployment go up to 40%, uh, which would be unprecedented by several orders of magnitude. It's death and suffering, right? I mean, that has been, been the story of, of the climate crisis for a long time. And I think it's unique to have 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 something that's causing uh, so much pain happening right out in the open in the United States and in places where it can't be ignored, right? We, we you know, have had crises all throughout the United States, um, people not having health care, folks, you know, dying of, of quote unquote natural disasters uh, in places that, you know, the Trump administration likes to ignore. Um, but I think, you know, this has taken the center stage in a way that climate, you know, does not and is, is really, I think, 
looking like a test run for for how we will deal with a century of crisis, a century that will be marked by crisis. Um, and, and we knew that already. And I think this is really, you know, putting things into, into pretty stark relief and, and I think is making the big fights of, of the coming decades really clear. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what we're talking about here is a century of crisis. And I want to maybe tease out a bit of the this underlying crisis of capitalism and social inequality that I think folks listening will will have come across. But there are some ways, I think, that make this pretty stark. Um, if we just look at who is being killed by coronavirus uh, right now, what does that tell us about American society? Um there were some numbers coming out of Michigan recently that showed that 40% of the deaths were of uh, black people compared to 20% of the population of the state. Uh, last night, I saw that the Chicago Teachers Union tweeted out um, an image from ABC News coverage showing that in Chicago, um, deaths by, I guess, racial group, um, white deaths, 19, black, 113. Hispanic 14 and Asian six. So these are the categories on TV. Um, but so just quickly in percentages, that's 11% white, 68% black uh, deaths in Chicago. And, you know, anyone who's followed uh, disaster sociology, you know, may know the work um, by Eric Kleinenberg, professor at NYU, a book called Heat Wave, Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago. And indeed, what we know, um, I'm a sociologist, and of course, what social scientists know, but I think everyday people know it just as well, is that the underlying cause of the intense amount of suffering in a pandemic, in any kind of extreme weather, in any kind of disaster, is social inequality just makes it worse. And the people who are doing the worst when the, when the disaster hits, of course, get hit the hardest and get hit first. Um, we could also talk, you know, last night, uh, MTA, uh, New York Public Transit, uh, I think 33 deaths now of MTA workers. Um, of course, the MTA is basically run by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's being celebrated as a hero, and yet the people running public transit are dying because the conditions are are so grim. Um, so I guess I'll just add one last number as I go through this range of numbers that I've just been kind of I feel like have just been flooring me in the last few days. Um, a couple of days ago, we got a new study in Nature looking at inequality and in energy footprints, so kind of who's using the most energy. And of course, what we find is that the bottom half of the global population uses less energy than the top 5% um, uses. So we're really, um, we're really just in a situation where I think we have to start thinking about the root cause of what makes this pandemic so brutal, not the only thing, but a major root cause of what makes the pandemic so brutal is our inequalities of, of class and of race, uh, and of course of, of gender as well, but we've just been talking about class and race. And I think we'll talk in a minute about different ways that this impacts the economy and climate change and so on. Um, but the one thing we can just never escape is just how destroyed we are by inequality. And that that is that is the preparation that capitalism provides us with, right? Yeah, and and the thing I would add on to that because I think we have seen this sort of odd, uh, I guess, pandemic Malthusianism uh, cropping up in in different parts of the internet. Uh, I think that the sort of meme that's emerged is "We are the virus; the earth is healing." People uh, spreading, you know, these images of most a lot of them are fake. 
of uh, things like dolphins coming into the Venice Canal, air pollution clearing up, etc. The slightly more evolved take on that is that um, carbon emissions are declining uh, because people aren't going to work. Uh, but that I don't think does does justice to to you know what the project of decarbonization looks like. It is not um, obviously going to be through a pandemic um, by which we you know get to a no carbon future, yeah, the the one we're you know we're aiming toward. Um, but also just you know ignores the fact that that it's it's really hard to talk about some kind of collective we in this moment, right? Humanity is is being very unequally affected. Um, by the coronavirus. I mean, I think it was um, Madonna who, in a, a bathtub on uh, some godforsaken video, uh, talked about the coronavirus being the great equalizer between rich and poor. And it's just not, right? It, it, it's just not. The people who are dying of the coronavirus, by and large, are um, people who are already, you know, on the losing end of, of decades of inequality in an economic system, which which devalues people's humanity across the board. Certainly people who are wealthy are getting sick, right? Uh, that's, that's, that is happening. But um, in terms of, you know, any sort of meaningful meta level, meta level trends, um, the folks who are already on the losing end of business as usual are on the losing end of the coronavirus. And I think that should shape really how we think about our response to it. We hear this phrase often, you know, climate change the same. It's the great equalizer. And I, I feel like, you know, hearing you put it that way, Kate, is, is exactly right. And it makes me want to say, like, that is actually active disinformation. I mean, that is essentially like, what do you want to call it? Ideology. Yeah, Madonna. Propaganda. Yeah, it's just a lie. Um, <laughs> it is not it just it's a insane logical fallacy to say just because, let's say, Boris Johnson gets coronavirus, which is horrible. But just because some rich people, some powerful people get this virus, that therefore we're all equally exposed is just, I mean, wildly wrong. It just is the exact kind of like celebrity anecdote fiction that makes it really hard for people to even get a grip on the situation. I mean, I'm not sure that it's exactly convincing, but I'm just, I'm so sick of hearing this, these ideas that we're all kind of equal in the face of these threats. Yeah. I mean, it, it's particularly in the United States where, again, we don't have a functional healthcare system, right? We, we have millions of people unemployed, people who die premature deaths without a pandemic uh, just because they can't afford medical care. Um, and those people are, are much more at risk uh, than, than the Boris Johnsons of the world. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about comorbidities and the, the comorbidities are essentially the outcome of eco-apartheid, right? So comorbidities, things like being overweight, um, having problems with your lungs, maybe asthma. Well, these are problems that are overwhelmingly concentrated in black and brown and indigenous communities as a result of the structural kind of functioning of American capitalism. I mean, it's bad enough in other developed countries where you know, economic hierarchy still really affects people's health. But in the U.S., it's just brutal, the racial um, and class impacts on on health. So let's let's get into a bit what we can do uh, about this. Um, let's talk about these ideas that, you know, Kate, you and I have both been propounding in our various um, ways, this idea of kind of green stimulus, um, that a response to the massive, you know, economic devastation and health devastation but especially looking forward to, you know, unemployment at Great Depression levels, that it should be quote unquote green. What 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 is that idea of green stimulus meant to you, Kate, and, and the reporting you've done at the New Republic and, and all the other work you've done on this on this issue? Green stimulus, just first off, is is sort of talking about the fact that we are going to have and already have had 
a huge stimulus, right? We, we've passed so far. Congress has gotten through three rounds of stimulus. The Fed has pulled out every tool in its box and invented new ones uh, in order to keep the financial system operating uh, and shore up, you know, corporate bond markets. Um, without really blinking, uh, the Congress passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, which is much bigger than, than was passed in, in response to the Great Recession a decade ago. So there's this opportunity, right, um, to, to, to spend money. And I think that can feel a little bit uncomfortable to talk about this as an opportunity because there is so much suffering happening. But uh, as, as we're already seeing, that is exactly what uh, the, the right is doing. That is ex exactly what the people who design the system, which is making people sick and killing them, uh, they're taking advantage of this um, really actively, right? I mean, Treasury Secretary, Secretary Steve Mnuchin has this uh, $450 billion more, if you count in its kind of total footprint uh, slush fund, essentially, to hand over to whoever he wants. They just scrapped the oversight body that Democrats had, had grafted into this. And I think we see um, a real lack of leadership and a real lack of uh, vision among Democrats who are negotiating these deals. So, you know, just to, to name names, I, I think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, I think we've, we've just seen, you know, really kind of a lack of, a lack of vision in general, right? I mean, just maybe working in some sort of long-term priorities, but being very willing to kind of back off even, even things, um, Establishment Democrats have spent a long time talking about even infrastructure, right? The most sort of like mundane proposal uh, Nancy Pelosi backed off on this week. Uh, just, you know, could not sort of, you know, muster, muster a fight around that. Um, granted, you know, don't want to say these are ideal negotiating terms. Democrats do not control the Senate, do not control the White House, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, as, as your work has, has been pointing out recently, which we'll talk more about in a bit, and which I've, you know, been sort of talking to different folks about and reporting, um, we can say something else, right? The opportunity to point out just what a failure uh, manifestly, what a dangerous, deadly failure uh, the Republican leadership has been on this um, is so clear. And in response to that, we, we just, you know, have not seen at, at, at the leadership level um, a, a real um, commitment and, and particularly have not seen anything on climate, right? That's been almost nowhere uh, in the conversation coming out of congressional leadership. And uh, this comes after both a year since the Green New Deal came out. Um, really, you know, assuaging folks like the Sunrise Movement, um, telling the climate movement, you know, we really care about this. This is something that the Democratic Party takes seriously. We are going to really make this a priority. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, it's nowhere to be found, right? There has not been even kind of a whisper about climate change um, in in proposals uh, coming, out, coming out of Congress. And even if they're is something it is the first thing to be thrown out of the table. And so I have been, you know, writing about um, a couple of ideas uh, for, for, you know, what a green stimulus can look like. Uh, one of which is, um, you know, calling up the legacy of a time when Democrats 
did deal with society-wide crisis um, in the Great Depression. So talking about the need for something like a, a green uh, works progress administration or a federal job guarantee um, to you know deal with this massive unemployment crisis we are walking into right now. Obviously, uh, people are not actually going to work right now. Um, you know, we're not, we're not commuting in. We're we're living in a shutdown, uh, and that's put you know millions of people out of work. Uh, it's very likely that millions of people will be out of work even after um, the shutdown ends. And so uh, what, you know, I talk about in a piece for the New Republic um, is the idea of making the federal government uh, the employer of last resort, which many kind of progressive economists, people like Derek Hamilton, Stephanie Kelton, um, have been writing about for a long time. Um, but this idea that the the private sector um, is, is just not interested necessarily uh, in, in putting people um, back to work or in making people whole um, in a real way. And so in order to, you know, just deal with, with the suffering, we can, you know, have the government um, really provide uh, employment for people, um, you know, through existing infrastructure like American job centers around the country. Um, clearly, there's no shortage of funds to, to make this happen. We're, will, you know, willing to spend as much money as needed to bail out corporations. Um, and a lot of that work can be no carbon, right, can be work in service of a uh, more sustainable society writ large. Um so, you know, I go into some of that work in the piece, but I think part of, you know, the thing that I would emphasize about it is, is really expanding the the frame of what constitutes a green job as part of any kind of federal job guarantee. Um, so, you know, not just thinking about people putting up wind turbines and putting solar panels on houses. That's, of course, great work. And, you know, a as we can talk about soon in, in relation to, to some of the thinking you've been doing along with other folks, um, there's a big opportunity for that, but also for uh, providing an alternative to the kind of high carbon, low wage supply chains that, that you know, a lot of the work people are doing are bound up in, um, you know, providing an alternative to uh, going to work in places like Walmart uh, and McDonald's um, and, and really having uh, the work that people are doing both be highly paid, providing a dignified quality of life and being work that improves uh, the community and the planet. I, of course, you know, share with you the strong urge to put forward the notion that a lot of the work we need, including the work we desperately re need right now, like nursing, that is essentially no carbon work, that's care work. And we need more of it, not just right now, but long term, um, more teachers, better paid, more nurses, preschool teachers, uh, you name it. Um, I think that, you know, another issue you raised, uh, Kate, is who is going to benefit from the stimulus? Like there is going to be stimulus. The question is, what kind of stimulus is there going to be? Um, one thing we're seeing in a kind of subtle way is not just pouring, you know, hundreds of billions and then leveraged by the Fed trillions into the corporate sector, but specific rollbacks of, of regulations that have been uh, holding back the fossil fuel industry in some way, or even just limiting pollution. Um, people like uh, regulations like Trump, you know, rolling back uh, fuel economy standards for cars, which is just absolutely insane. Um, or, you know, a friend of ours, Amy Westervelt, has this great website, uh, Drilled News, and she's just started tracking, you know, at the state level, 
all the different regulatory rollbacks favoring the fossil fuel industry that have been happening under cover of the coronavirus. Um, so, you know, almost two dozen rollbacks. That was yesterday. And, you know, more being reported uh, every day and almost almost every hour. So I think what we're talking about is saying, look, you're going to spend money on the economy no matter what. Um, of course, we should spend as much as possible, not just to bounce back to where we were before. We don't even really want to do that, but to bounce forward to a good economy of good paying jobs. Um, but also, why would we reinflate the fossil fuel sector, which is making us so vulnerable um, to climate catastrophe in the first place? It doesn't really make any sense. So there's the care sector, which you talked about, um, Kate, and there are other sectors of just sort of straight, I think, jobs rich, green economy spending that we hope the Democratic Party and its and its politicians will really start advocating uh, the kinds of policies that we've been hearing about from Bernie and AOC um, and others so far. So I and uh, 10 others put together this letter called um, calling for a green stimulus. If you just look on Twitter, hashtag green stimulus, you'll find <laughs> we just keep posting it over and over. So you'll certainly find it um, been signed by over 2000 people, including former EPA head uh, Gina McCarthy, the heads of multiple really powerful racial and economic and climate justice organizations, some leading economists. And uh, yeah, our core argument is, look, we need to bring jobs back. We need to lift up communities and especially the vulnerable communities that have been hit hardest by this. So we can make direct investments that are going to help workers and go directly into the communities that are hurting. We can talk about things like electric buses, retrofitting uh, homes, retrofitting public housing, retrofitting homes uh, for people who don't make a lot of money. Uh, solar and battery projects to create kind of local resiliency, we could just go down a very long list. And in fact, I think throughout the the season here of Hot and Bothered, we'll just be talking in a lot more detail about green stimulus ideas. So I'm not going to get into every single one of them today. I will just note one last thing. It's just that um, I'm a bit involved in, in sort of the policy side of the Homes Guarantee Campaign of People's Action. And one of their big ideas, which is, of course, absolutely essential, is uh, rent zero or cancel rent, which is this idea that we have to suspend monthly housing payments, mortgages, uh, rent payments, utility payments. Uh, we should ideally forgive those. We should forgive those. Um, and we shouldn't be charging like late fees or anything like that. And I think that, again, something we'll be talking about in future episodes, but has come up, Kate, and both the things you and I have been talking about. What we want to do with this green stimulus is not say, okay, there's a kind of pristine, clean silo for regreening the economy that should happen separate from immediate relief, care, people's basic economic needs. Well, I think what we're saying is that the full economic recovery in every dimension of creating a more just uh, economy in the wake of this disaster should have green elements and, and vice versa. The green things we do should be fundamentally informed by cutting carbon pollution, making life better for workers, better jobs, and making life better for communities. So I think that's that like it's that exactly like you were saying, Kate, that whole intersectional idea that we had with the Green New Deal has to also inform, I think, our economic recovery. Yeah. And, and just to really hammer home something we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, we've seen, you know, through this crisis, who the workers are who keep society going. It is not tech bros. It is not, uh, you know any number of kind of financial speculators. It is nurses, it is teachers, it is the people who, you know, are doing work that is often poorly paid, is often undervalued, and are now, you know, on the front lines. We have politicians talking about 
nurses and doctors as troops, essentially, right? And 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 you know, not just nurses and doctors, but you know, grocery shelf stackers, delivery drivers, uh, Amazon warehouse workers. These are the people who are keeping society going. And that doesn't change when we're out of a pandemic, right? That has always been the case. And this is just making that so clear. I think it's also worth noting that, you know, most of these categories of workers are notoriously the, the main contributors to Bernie Sanders' campaign, actually. You know, Walmart workers, Amazon workers, teachers. We know that unionized nurses, very strong supporters. Um, so I think this, you know, of course, the question of labor is something we're going to cycle back through again and again in the spring. I just want to very briefly note something. I don't think we have the time to get into um, today, but just kind of put on on the shelf for discussion, right, is the future of socialism if Bernie doesn't win the nomination. Um, we are seeing exactly like you were just saying, Kate, you know, the essential workers are in many ways the political base of the Bernie campaign. And I think one of the things we're going to have to think about going forward is what does it look like to keep building socialism in the United States, keep building eco-socialism in the United States, um, and not necessarily having the Bernie campaign be the most visible part of that. Um, do we continue to do electoral work? Where do we do it? Whole series of questions, I think, about the future of, of socialism and eco-socialism, their relationship to this crisis and, and the recovery. Um, one last thing I just want to get into a little bit um, before we, we sign off is this issue of climate disasters intersecting with COVID-19. And I want to bring this up because this is one of these areas where I actually don't know really what to think, except to be extremely worried. Um, we're entering extreme uh, you know, fire season in, in California. Um, it tends to be very bad these days because of climate change, of course. We're looking at a third of the United States this year vulnerable to flooding. We saw how devastating floods uh, were in the Midwest last year. And then um, meteorologists are warning us of a very severe hurricane season this summer and fall. Um, and I just, I mean, I, I'm curious to hear your take, Kate, but I, ju I just keep thinking, like, what's it going to be like to have a massive extreme weather event what, at a time when it's not safe to work outside? And we're going to have to figure something out. And I don't know if there's priority testing for relief workers, but like, as bad as it is to deal with this stuff in isolation, to imagine... Like I lived through Hurricane Sandy in, in New York, and many of us have lived through disasters. To imagine something like Sandy occurring and then going out and doing relief work, knowing that we're revitalizing a pandemic. I mean, it's so kind of catastrophic. And the fear I have of forms of like racial violence and policing and the kind of role of the military, I just think this is something we need to get ahead of because we know that these crises are going to converge in really brutal, visceral, and massive ways. And um, I just need help and and uh, it's, I guess, time to just talk through how to prepare for that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of uncertainties about where we are right now. And, and that, I think, is, is one of the biggest questions. I think that the thing that I keep coming back to is, is that, you know, I don't I don't want to give too much credit to the right. I think, you know, that they, they get more credit than they deserve often, right? But but something we do know is that um, the right really plans for these moments. The right, you know, has has a script kind of in place for um, what it does uh, when when disaster strikes, and it is really just as you were saying, so horrifying to imagine um, that playbook. You know, the playbook we saw play out in Hurricane Katrina, in uh, Maria to see that unveiled in a situation in which people 
are so isolated and really have to, you know, stay in their homes. And I think the one the one thing that I would take a little bit of solace in um, is just, you know, there has been an incredible amount of social solidarity uh, around the coronavirus. I mean, people really, you know, are taking kind of social isolation measures very seriously, but also organizing mutual aid networks. And I think that can get overemphasized in some ways and and in a way that, you know, runs the risk of de-emphasizing the role of the state and the fact that, you know, it should not be up to the kind of individual initiative of, 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 people to uh, organize disaster relief that, you know, in, in a competent, well-run society, um, that that would be the responsibility of a, of a democratic government. Um, but but I, I think, you know, we are in, in a pretty interesting time that was interesting, um, you know, before all of this happened, which is that we have had four years of a uh, left that is, you know, stronger in many ways than it has been in a very long time, right? The the ideas that the Sanders campaign has put out are popular. We just had a primary, which, you know, has gotten buried, I think, in, in just the chaos of this news cycle. Um, but where candidates were talking about ideas that were considered on the kind of radical fringe um, of politics just, you know, four years ago, right? The kind of mainstream, that the mainstream Democratic position in uh, this primary had been, you know, at least paying some lip service to the Green New Deal, if not having an extremely detailed proposal about what that looks like. There was a range of those proposals. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders, this was probably the best one of those, um, in, informed by, you know, the climate movements that that um, his his campaign staff were speaking to and, and was informing his program. But um, there are really good ideas out there. Um, and I think this is not a moment which really lends itself to um, to the kind of business as usual um, that, that the Democratic Party has been pursuing. Um, I think it lends itself to a host of scary things, but I think there is a real opening right now to, to really think about the, the sort of big green stimulus that, that you were talking about, Daniel, to think about really reimagining what it is that the government owes to its people, what we owe to one another, and just kind of the script. I mean, I was uh, really floored to see this, you know, like many people, this uh, leader from from the Financial Times editorial board calling uh, for radical reforms, you know, uh, in verbatim, right? Um, said governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. They must see public service as investments rather than liabilities and look for ways to make labor markets less insecure, right? This is the Financial Times, the sort of mouthpiece of capital that's saying that. And if the Financial Times is saying that, I think um, certainly we are at a moment where there is real potential for uh, potentially very radical, you know, even socialist ideas to take root. Um, and that's, you know, I think part of that being a possibility is also very scary things being a possibility. I think we're seeing that play out. Um, you know, in the ways that uh, sort of aspiring authoritarians are responding to this crisis, um, you know, Trump, but also Modi uh, in India. Um, there, you know, are many, many possibilities in this moment, but I am not convinced that all of them are bad. And I am convinced that there is a real um, potential for a democratic egalitarian politics to take root. And I, I don't think, you know, that 
we have to think about that in, in such catastrophic terms. I think there's a way to think about this moment in a way that is generative, in a way that really inspires ambitious thinking and, and is not just, you know, defaulting to despair, which I think is people who think a lot about the climate crisis is, is a set of tools we are sort of used to working with. And, and um, I've, I've felt at least a little bit um, grateful to, to spend most of my time thinking about uh, an existential crisis, um, which I think, you know, has, has made it a little bit easier uh, to, to think through this moment as one that, you know, is not just defined by, uh, you know, cynicism or, or uh, fatalism. Yes, thank you, Kate. That's exactly what we need to do is to remember how much momentum there is building, how much possibility there is for us to pull through this crisis and then to really build a much, 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 much better world. And of course, a more sustainable, climate-friendly world on the way out. And that's absolutely what this podcast um, is going to be about. So speaking of building, we've got this Patreon, patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. It's going to help to cover the costs of this podcast to ensure that we can have uh, both of us speaking, but also, of course, guests and, and all of us coming out every week. So to find our Patreon, it's uh, patreon.com slash hotbotheredclimate. One word, hot bothered climate. So thank you in advance to anyone who is able to contribute. And that wraps up our first episode of our new season. So as we head off, remember to just stay inside and stay bothered. <laughs>